Hello and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with one co-host this week. I'm Joe Lalo. And it's just going to be the two of us. Uh, Andrea is focused on a romance authors conference this week, and um, I'm going to be at the 20 Book Show uh, conference next week. So Joe's here with you both weeks, uh, but just me and Joe tonight, and next week you'll get Joe and Andrea. And I'm not sure yet what they're going to talk about, but we're going to kind of take a look at some of our past successes and what we learned in the last decade of publishing, and also talk about kind of how we're planning going forward to kind of succeed and deal with all the changes that are constantly coming to the industry, especially as like what works with marketing and that kind of thing. But before we jump into the topic, Joe, do you have any news that you would like to share? Sure. Uh, my last big news update that I did sort of laid out the roadmap for several months. So things aren't going to change substantially from that. Um, the first big step in that is release of Greaterlands 3, which is going to be right around. It's going to be, it will probably have released before this comes out. I forget exactly when I have the date set for. But uh, so since that hasn't happened yet, so I don't have any news re regarding that. So instead, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Atticus.io. Dave Chesson was on recently and talked about it. And I decided to give it a shot. This is not sponsored. I paid my own money for it. Um, as it stands right now, it's much more of a formatting tool than a writing tool. Like you can absolutely write, but it's if you're used to the features that exist in Scrivener, like the more advanced ones, like you know, sliding your scenes around and, and stuff like that, those aren't in uh, Atticus.io yet. Uh, but it's uh, it's growing ridiculously fast. Uh, Right now, you can produce EPUBs and paperback uh, PDFs and stuff. But like, I kept on running into bugs. And literally, I mean, it was still in beta for part of the time that I was doing this. And literally, by the time I got a reply from the tech support one or two days later, because it happened on a weekend, uh, it had already been fixed with an update. So like, the, the development is incredibly fast right now. So I hesit by the time you're listening to this, probably half of the stuff that uh, I would have complained about isn't going to be wrong. In fact, there's really only one thing left that I wanted them to fix. And if you look at the roadmap, I hadn't started making a list of stuff that I like if I was asked, like if I decided to send an email to Dave and say, hey, here's what I'd like you to add. I made a list of stuff that I felt was missing. And then I looked at their roadmap. They have a public roadmap and everything but one that I wanted uh, was on it. So uh, it's it's, you know, it's got some problems right now. It's incomplete right now. And they'll say as much. But if you don't own Vellum or are incapable of using Vellum, uh, I would say that it's already probably a, a decent option for you. And if you don't use Scrivener, but have been thinking about it for a while and don't want to spend the money on both Vellum and Scrivener, keep your eye on that public roadmap. And once it has all the features that you're looking for, I, I would recommend probably giving it a try because uh, I've, I've enjoyed my experience thus far. That's good. And I know some people were interested in that in our Facebook group after we had Dave on. So hopefully we'll get to check it out. I've got Scrivener and Vellum since I'm a Mac person. And so I'm not jumping, looking for anything new right now, but it's always interesting to hear about the new tools. I will say Scrivener is probably the most affordable thing out there. I want to say I paid $50. And even when I, like eight years later, I went to upgrade it to the new version, the all new, and it was only like $25. I compare that to now the annual subscription to uh, MS Word that I have to pay. I was like, I think I, for the longest time, I was able to just keep using the old edition, but then I got a new Mac and they're like, no, no, subscription now. That's how Microsoft rolls. But anyway, um, yeah, for my news, 
so we just hit the end of October as we're recording this a week before it goes out. So I'll actually be in 20 books by the time you guys are listening to this one. So I can say hi, assuming I'm, I, I woke up sniffling this morning and telling Joe, can we just do a short episode tonight? Crossing my fingers, there's nothing and I'll be cool tomorrow. Um, but we just hit the end of October as I'm recording this. And that's when I always do my kind of uh, annual calculations to estimate my gross income for the year because of the two month delay in payments for most of the vendors. That's about that's kind of when you can figure out mostly what you've made. Um, it's sort of rough. Like, I, I don't know what my final audiobook payment from Podium will be until December. And I don't bother figuring out my expenses until I get ready to do my taxes in the new year. But it's enough to know that I actually am ending up making more in 2021 than I did the year before. And I didn't expect to since my epic fantasy series, which was my main series for the year, didn't take off to the extent that my urban fantasy series did last year in 2020. But, you know, after a kind of eh, okay launch, it, it's done okay. It's probably helped along by the fact that the books are pretty long. So they've been, they're exclusive to Amazon and in KU. So they've been making decent money on the page reads. Um, but it's actually the really the difference this year is audiobook income. I would probably be down a little bit just going by ebook income. But I think I talked about on a previous episode, this is the first year where it's been six figures just from the audiobook in, income. Um, find a way has been about the same as the year before, but ACX went up quite a bit for my monthly, uh, I was going to say paychecks, direct deposits. That I think is in part thanks to my YouTube experiment where I, where I got a new, a lot of new listeners to pick up my Death Before Dragons series. Um, but also my last couple of podium payments have been like amazingly <laughs> way more than they were in previous quarters and years. And that is largely due to uh, Audible kind of started adding some free content with their subscriptions to the, the people that get credits also get certain books for free. And my Dragon Blood collection, which is through Podium, got picked up and put in that. I'm not sure how long it's for, but it's been almost a year now and it's still in there. And, and that's been kind of amazing. Like I have, to, I didn't have to spend any extra money on promoting it on like my eBooks, which I run all the Amazon ads and stuff too. Um, and, you know, people get it for free, but then there's a bunch of more books in the series and, and quite a few have gone on to buy them or check them out with their credits, which, you know, I, you sell enough copies, it, it ends up being decent money. So, um, I don't expect that big boost to last necessarily. And I'm sure that that is also part of why my ACX earnings have uh, increased on the series I've produced myself. But it is pretty cool to realize that as an author, you can have stuff you wrote years ago um, that you consider like way in your backlist at this point, take off due to new opportunities opening up. I also had a I think in the last 12, eight months, I've signed with two foreign publishers for two different of my fantasy series. Again, backlist stuff. Those weren't huge paychecks, but it's just, it's nice that as an author, we can be paid for things that we've already created. It's always nice to get a paycheck for something you thought was, you know, that you were done with years in the past. So that has been my news. And I guess we'll jump into our topic now, which is just kind of talking about the past, present, and future of our careers. So I will ask some questions. I think Joe has a couple at the end or one for me too, but um, I'm going to ask them, but we're both going to answer them. So Joe, starting with you, starting with you, as if there's anybody else here to start with, maybe the plush dragon behind you in your shelves. Um, what has been your most financially successful series to date? As evidenced by the presence of a plush dragon in myself, uh, shelf, the uh, the Book of Deacon series has been my most successful by a huge margin. If you include all the books in the series, it has earned more than 10 times what the next highest earner earned. 
my other two series are free. My other two main series are Free Ranch and Big Sigma, and they've earned about the same as each other. Like within maybe within five percent, they're surprisingly consistent between them. And uh, everything else is either equal. Well, everything else is either too new for me to have enough data to say how well it's doing, or a complete flop, or not a series, which is as we know is is kind of apples to oranges if you try to compare those. So. Yeah, uh, Book of Deacon by by far. I was actually surprised to see how far. <laughs> Did you say ten times? Ten times. Much? Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> uh, we'll go into some details later that, that, that it's not a fair comparison, but it, yeah, it's still hugely more successful than the, the the runner up. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to bring up too is that that's your first series, and my the one that's I believe is still in the is still leading like it's been a few years since I checked because I don't have book report right now since Amazon's reports have kind of improved quite a bit I haven't felt the need to subscribe to that um, but that used to be good for kind of looking at all your lifetime income of various books and series but um definitely I would say Dragon Blood too I believe is still one of my largest but it's also one of my oldest so it's had more years to accumulate income and it, it tends to be of my backlist series, it does the best on its own, even when I'm not promoting it. I, I do occasionally try to get a book bub or something for that box set, but um, it, I've had the box set free for the longest time and it just continues to, like sometimes it goes way up. Like when COVID first started, I had a whole lot of people looking for free books and I was getting, you know, like 5,000 downloads a month on the free box set just for no reason <laughs> other than people looking. Uh, and now it's more like a thousand, I think the last time I checked, but it, it tends to do quite well. And that the one that's the thing that's kind of interesting about that series, it's, it came out a little bit before like KDP select and it, the Amazon exclusivity thing, I think was around then. Cause I remember it was just starting to feel like, Oh man, those books that are in that are like getting more of a, a boost. I think <laughs> about the time that I was working on that series and I, it was before Kindle unlimited. So I, there was no, big temptation for me to become exclusive at that time I'd been wide but that series has always been wide I've never put it in uh, Amazon's exclusivity stuff so uh, and it, it also did not take off right away like it did okay but book one I've talked about this before so I'll keep it short but book one is like a it was supposed to be a standalone fantasy romance then I decided to write another one and I did a different couple they had their own little romance thing and then I was like wow I really want to go back to the first characters because they were a lot of fun so I did a book three and I think it had both couples in that one and that was sort of a start of a trilogy which none of this played out real well because people read the first one and like oh that's good I'm done with this series it's new characters in the next one it didn't really take off until I put the first three books into the box set so one and two were kind of standalone adventures and then three kicked off a trilogy within the series books three four and five and three had a total cliffhanger ending so it worked well you know because i think when you do a box set people are just going to keep reading as long as they're somewhat enjoying themselves there's not that question mark like oh do i buy the next one like, oh, no no the just the next one's on the next page so that one uh ended up being like eight books it's, it's, side novella, side novel, and then a five book spinoff series. And uh, the spinoff series also did quite well. So that's been my probably most successful one, even having had later successes. Uh, and it is in 20 years, will it still be there? I don't know. It's got the advantage now because it did come out years earlier than any of the stuff I'm publishing now. All right, Joe, looking back, do you have any takeaways from that first series or thoughts on why it not just outperformed others, but dramatically outperformed others. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of obvious reasons why it would have been the big winner. 
there's first off, there's 15 books in that setting. Uh, and the, the other books that I've, other series I've written have a maximum of eight. So it's already going to probably earn quite as much just, you know, if, if they were equivalent. But uh, the Book of Deacon was also the only series that I had more than one book out in once I started making big sales. Like I, I didn't, I had, I think, three books out in the Book of Deacon and one in Big Sigma when I had my first big splash. And my first big splash was going free, perma-free on the Book of Deacon book one. So it was the first big hit and it had follow on from the start. Uh, and then because I had more books out in that series than anything else, every time, every subsequent big hit with another series, like I had a couple of good launches on both uh, my sci-fi and my steampunk, uh, it was, you know, people, anybody who wanted to stick with me ended up going back to that. So every bump on the other series was also a bump on, on Book of Deacon. And there's other stuff. It's, uh, it technically has three entry points. It's, it's a pretty easy series to get into. It's complicated by other stuff that I'll get into, but I, I learned a lot. Um, a story with lots of unanswered questions and unresolved plot threads sells way better than one that hits with a big, satisfying conclusion. Because the Book of Deacon series was originally just called the Book of Deacon Trilogy because I'd written one mammoth half a million word book and then split it up into three pieces. So if you read uh, book, of, book of Deacon 1, 2, and 3, you'll, you'll, I think you'll agree that you're satisfied with the story by the time book three ends. And initially there was a giant drop-off between books three and four as a result because lots of people got to get book three and didn't feel the need to continue because the story is told. Uh, over time, and just the fact that, you know, I now have six books, and people tend to be more aware that there's a book four once they finish book three, that's evened out a little. But still, if you look at the lifetime sales, books one, two, and three have a giant step off before uh, three, four, I mean, four, five, and six. Um, I also learned that a good cover is a must, uh, and that a good cover can revitalize and amplify the sales of a book that was already released. Because again, the Book of Deacon it first had its first really big month with an original homemade cover that I made, and it was terrible. Uh, and uh, I, I took the money I made from that month, hired an artist, and put a new cover on top that is the current face of my entire career. And it quadrupled sales. Uh, <laughs> like, I was in the midst of that first bump and suddenly had a better uh, cover, and the bump amplified. So I learned very much that a good cover is important, even if that cover hasn't been with it. The book was out for more than a year by the time that came along. So uh, you can you can revitalize something quite well by giving it a higher quality cover. Also, despite the success, I also learned that uh, an easy to follow reading order would have helped. Uh, as I said, this has technically three entry points. Um, and I have I've put together a, a, a flow chart of ways that you can read this series. It was written all out of order, released all out of order. I think I probably could have done a lot better if I had released it in a much more straightforward way. Uh, and if I was more consistent with the releases, because uh, even though this was my big earner, I was early in my career when I was releasing it and, and the other series. So I didn't quite grasp that I probably should have just run the entire course of the Book of Deacon before I started anything else. So the release schedule was seldom more than one a year, sometimes more than a year between releases. Uh, and it's still sold remarkably well considering that. So I think I probably would have been better served, and I now know, if I had just taken all of my release slots and given them to Book of Deacon until it was done. And those are the main things that I picked up from that series. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that some authors will do like 20 books with the same characters, it, often like mysteries and thrillers and things where they kind of, it lends itself to 
having a complete episode in each book and I don't know you can do different stories in each one so I feel that in some genres like or romance it's really hard to like do what you're supposed to do for the genre conventions and have a 20 book series uh, and then also some authors are just like uh, I can't write that much I got to do something new after three books or you know I, I've definitely had a series like I had planned a trilogy for my Heritage of Power the spin-off series of the Dragonblood and the first couple books did really well as immediately like oh, okay we're turning this into five books and looking back I'm like I should have turned that into 10 books I you can't oh it's kind of tough to sometimes just do that they're like you were talking about if you didn't plan for that and the story seems to end at book three or book five and is really satisfying conclusion people might not expect there to be another one or might not even feel they need another one if you had like ended with a big wedding or you know the bad guy that from the whole series has been defeated so it can be a little bit of a challenge do you find that with your book of deacon series is it easier than your other ones to get book bugs like do you think you've had more uh, promotions or i don't know if you ever get amazon like daily deals and things like that i've never gotten an amazon daily deal it's never been amazon uh uh, exclusive that series i had uh, a lot of luck with bookbub early on like i think the first five times that i applied for a bookbub with the book of deacon book one uh, i got it four of those times like i i buy i've probably had as many six like actual accepted featured deals for uh, for book of deacon book one than i had uh for the rest of my books combined like every other uh, featured deal was Book of Deacon. And I mean, by the time I started looking for these, I had over a thousand reviews and, you know, a, a, a average score over four stars. So I'm sure it looked great to them, even though it's perma-free. And I know they prefer nowadays that it be a discounted price. So yeah, uh, I, again, every this series had everything going for it. it. It didn't surprise me that it was the big winner. I just was surprised at how big of a winner. Yeah, I think the book club people have even mentioned in interviews I've heard with them that they kind of know what their readers respond to or their newsletter subscribers. Like, I, I've, you know, I think it's easier to get like epic fantasy than urban fantasy. That just seems to be like what their list responds to. So they kind of, it's almost like if you get selected over and over again, they know too. Like, they know that that one's going to get a lot of clicks or it's like, a hint if you didn't already know which one of your series is the most uh, marketable that could be a bit of a t tell I guess um, I say for for my now I've forgotten what the original question was takeaways on why our, our best-selling series performed well um, in my case this is kind of where I confirmed that oh dragons sell fantasy or at least epic fantasy I haven't seen the trend as much in contemporary stuff um, and this was not my first series. This was, I had Emperor's Edge was my first main series of novels. And I also had Flash Gold, which was a series of novellas in which I discovered not only is steampunk set in the Yukon, not super popular, but novellas are not as popular as novels. That, that's sort of one of those series, like, I know I'm talking to a real fan if I met somebody who's read that one. Uh, it, I can't even promote it because the books are too short and most of the promo sites want uh, 60,000 word novels or something or 50,000 but uh yeah I learned to some extent the dragon cell and but I've done dragons since then and not had that degree of luck I do think you can analyze and learn from the past but sometimes things just take off more than others and you can make yourself a little crazy trying to replicate that success I've just kind of accepted with that one that for whatever reason they're not even the best covers unlike with Joe where he's like these are my I love these covers they're amazing people respond well to them you know the covers on that series from 
mine are okay. They were photoshopped. They were actually some of my least expensive covers and the box set doesn't even look, it's just a symbol, you know? So it's like one of those things where, and I've even had the designers ask me, like they've offered to like redo them all for me free of charge because I've given them a lot of business over the years. And they even said like, you know, we feel that those aren't quite up to the genre standards anymore. And I'm like, no, we are not touching those covers, those things. People download those books. Um, I think some of it too is uh, these, this is probably the same thing for Joe. Like once you've had a series that has kind of taken off and stuck and sold really well, at least I say, especially on Amazon, but I think probably somewhat on the other sites too, that there's kind of something in, we'll call it the algorithms or whatever, to keep rewarding the one that has had that kind of momentum and keep showing them. And uh, so I think that's why uh, I've definitely had series that were less stellar performers that just fall off to a lot lower level. So the level where you know the sales are probably coming from fans that found the backlist from the front list rather than like anybody stumbling across it on Amazon because it's in also bots or whatever. All right. So for kind of a fun question, what has been your artistically, what has been artistically your favorite book or series? Is it different from the one that was your bestseller? And do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I have a book called the rise of the red shadow, which is a book of Deacon prequel that, uh, it was the first time I ever asked my fans what they wanted, and the the the, the best answer they've ever given me. Uh, it, it can function as either an entry point to the series or a standalone. It focuses on the favorite character from the Book of Deacon trilogy, and was written immediately after the Book of Deacon trilogy. Um, it it leads you through much of that character's life. It's very like you know, even though it's one of my longer books, I think it's nearly two hundred thousand words. Uh, it's not multiple viewpoints. It's just one tight, slow analytical not analytical but you know in-depth uh, uh exploration and i feel like it's probably my most solid story uh, in terms of relationship and character growth and it was a pretty good earner too it's actually my fourth highest earning book overall behind the first three books of the book well that's not true between the first two books of the book of deacon and the second book of big sigma because i got free series starters um so yeah it was a pretty good earner uh and uh it doesn't have an audiobook too. So it's technically slightly uh, handicapped in terms of earnings. It's one of my only Book of Deacon stories. No, it's one of my only books that doesn't have an audio version. I really, I really ought to develop that and fill it out. Um, I think my favorite book I've written in terms of creativity and setting, like not, it's not a good book. It's a fun book. Uh, but I have a book called Between. Uh, which goes on the list of books that barely earned out their cover and edit. Like if I had not been able to get it into a story bundle, it probably would still be just barely at the cost of the cover on the edit. It's got all sorts of stuff piled against it. It was originally a, uh, a, a serial. So there's a free version of it lurking out there on Wattpad. And because it was originally a serial, it's much longer than it would otherwise be because there's lots of revisiting stuff. But the characters are really fun. And uh, uh, I just really, I've gotten so much more art and so much more fan art of that series. The people who love it, the people who have read it, love it and want me to write sequels. And I'm just like, maybe nowadays that I got more writing under my belt, I could potentially make that sequel into a winner, but it's still cross genre. And it's still, you know, I've given them Patreon stuff because I, I like the characters as much as they do. But uh, I certainly, it's not an earner and it's, uh, it's not literature. It's just a book. Yeah, I've, I think I've talked about this before, how it's often, at least with my case, and I feel like I've heard this from other authors too, where like your favorite 
or the one that you feel like is like really the most powerful thing you've written or, you know, indicative of what you wanted to say to the world and you just love it is rarely the one that becomes a really big seller. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I think uh, in my case, I really actually do enjoy my Dragon Blood and also my Star Kingdom series, which has done fine um, because I really like the characters and the chemistry. They just happen to be super fun characters to write. But I think my favorite story is still like my second novel, which was Encrypted, which is kind of this high fantasy morphs into like a sci-fi story at the end with a romance. So it wasn't very easy to categorize. The original cover was so not... <laughs> Like it was kind of science fantasy, I guess. It had like a cube, a glowing cube on the front on a dark back, black green cover. It, it looked more sci-fi than fantasy. So um, that didn't help at all with sales. Um, but I loved the the couple and they were these smart, geeky characters. So, you know, there was a little more intelligent than maybe just some of my romantic stuff. And there was a mystery to solve along with everything else. But you know, and it's some fans, it's a, it, there are fans that enjoy that because they were also drawn to like the smart geeky characters. But I feel like whenever I've written that less stuff that's less haha and a little more, I don't know if literary is a word. I don't want to <laughs> say that I ever really do literary fiction, but things that were a little more thoughtful and not as funny are actually very, have not particularly been popular with the fans. And I, even my Dragon uh, Gate epic fantasy series, the first one, it's definitely, there's some humor, but it's a little darker than my regular stuff, somewhat, somewhat inspired by our COVID pandemic year. So that was just how I was feeling that year when I plotted that out. And some of the early reviews were like, this is awful. This is not funny. This is not a good broker story. And, you know, it's like, even as a reader, I'm more likely to reread the ones of my own that have the funny chemistry haha stuff. So I should just stick to that. But you know how it is as a writer, you got to like stretch yourself. But uh, I think sometimes you have to do those books and just say, well, it's okay if these are mostly just for me or just a handful of, fan handful of fans that like that stuff. Uh, okay. So we've both been publishing more than 10 years at this point, and we've seen ebooks. In particular, you know, become a lot more competitive. I remember, you know, we had, I don't, I didn't even particularly get in that early. I, th I think the Kindle and the, you know, the, what was it like the DTP digital text platform dashboard, whatever it was on Amazon was had been up for a year or two before I found it. Um, but there were like way less. You used to be able to see how many books were in the store, and it was in the hundreds of thousands, or how many eBooks were in the store versus the millions that it's in now, if not tens of millions. So things have become more competitive. So for you, how are things going in the present and what are some of your current challenges? To be perfectly honest, things aren't going great in the present. Uh, although regular listeners already know that, you know, they know that from the struggles episode. Uh, I'm paying my bills. I'm not going into debt. Everything is fine, but I'm not doing much better than that. I've, I have been doing much better than that in the past. Uh, if this is the amount that I was making from my books back when the time came to make a decision about whether or not I'd go full-time author or keep my job, uh, it would have been a more difficult decision. It wouldn't have been a deal breaker because I, I, uh, this is probably making about as much as I was making the year before I, I quit my job. So it's not terrible by any means, but it's terrible compared to what it was four years ago. So there's that. Uh, the current challenge I'd say is stagnation. Um, all of the usual metrics for success as an author started to level out for me about four years ago. Uh, the flow of new signups to my newsletter, the sales bumps from new releases in a series. I let my momentum die, uh, and I haven't had much luck lighting a fire under things since. The worst is, 
when you don't get much of a bump from sales for new releases or buzz from, from your readers, keeping up the enthusiasm to write new stuff gets tough. So like I also just Joe Lalo has stagnated because it's like, you know, I'm not getting the juice from, from the process of writing. And when the solution is largely to increase your output, but your enthusiasm has been sapped by a series of failures, you, you get into sort of a, a, a feedback loop. So you, I would say the key problem that I have across everything that I need to solve is just stagnation and getting momentum going. Yeah, I feel like that a lot of traditional, traditionally published authors kind of experience that too, where they had like this one series that did well and made it turn them into like career authors. And then you'll see them try to do other things and they just don't take off, don't do nearly as well. And, you know, in some cases they come back and start writing more books in the original series. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, that would be the answer, but it's, I've, it's, I think it's common, you know, and that's one of the reasons I always say to people like, don't quit your day job off of one series, you know, like make sure the, 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 they're not just there for the series and that they're willing to keep reading more stuff by you. But yeah, it's, it's super discouraging when the sales are not good. I mean, you get good reviews. That's one thing, at least like your fans that do read them. I'm all, I'm like, how oh, Joe got a five star average on all his new stuff. What the heck? I don't get a five star average on anything. Um, you said that, you know, that thousand, uh, true fans or whatever. I've, I've definitely got a heap of true fans and that's, that's, that is absolutely encouraging. That's good. That's good. But yeah, that's one of the reasons I like to write uh, like the first three books before launching a new series is because I know I'm also prone to being discouraged. I've dropped a couple series along the way that I now I'm like, oh, I got to go back and finish those just so the fans can get closure. And because every now and then I get an email, where's, where's this, you know, book four and five in this series? Like, where were you six years ago when everybody was like, ew, <laughs> you know, sales were horrible and uh, people didn't like the new direction. But yeah, so I, I think you do the same too, you know, kind of write two or three before launching so that you can't really get discouraged until you've at least given it a good shake. And at that point, you're kind of committed. You're like, well, I only got three more to finish this series, but it, it's tough. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> write, write, write more books in your main series. Write 20 more, Joe. You know, I might dip into it. There's actually two Book of Deacon stories that are basically finished but not released because they just didn't have i learned my from my, my lesson and not to release things chronologically out of order so i have a second prequel and a uh, a distant sequel that were completed but never released because it would have screwed up the release order of of the current series and now that the current series has been concluded uh i i suspect that they'll find their place into my release schedule next year see there you go you take the sequel that'd be the easiest to turn into a a long series. I don't know about you, but my readers always want this story. They say they want the stories of like the children. And I don't think they really do. Or I'm just not very good at writing like YA characters because those never work out well for me. But you never know. Never know. Uh, I think for, for me, for this question, my current challenge is kind of wanting to get, to get to the point where I can take more time off and publish fewer books a year and being okay with that <laughs> myself because I'm really bad at taking time off. And I've started all these series. I have a pen name that I'm feeling guilty that I haven't written anything new from. So it, it's not necessarily that financially I can't take time off. I know in my head, I'm like, I'd be fine if I decided to write three or four books a series. <laughs> I mean, a year instead of, 
I don't know what it'll be this year, but I still managed to get like nine, probably even with the Epic Fantasy, because I do I'm doing the werewolves on the side and those are short. But yeah, it's just I it's not so much like I mean I of course it would be hard. It is always hard to watch the income drop too. And you're like, I'm gonna take three months off, but then it starts dropping. You're like, oh man, then it's not gonna be as good, you know. Maybe I'll just whip something out on the side. Um, but and then I get emails and stuff too, people asking for stuff, and it's funny. I'm always amazed at how many of my books people are willing to read. You'd think after a while, they'd be like, oh, not another one by her. But I, I'm we're totally fortunate and grateful for those people. Um, but yeah, they, that makes you feel some of the pressure too. So I feel like to take time off, I would have to actually hire someone to take over the social media and somehow get all my emails delivered to them, which is a mess because some of my stuff is like personal, you know, somehow my just my Comcast email address has been out there so long that a lot of authors have it. And so it's hard to completely step away from the business, but I don't know. I, I keep thinking like, I'm not ready to retire or anything like that, but I hear people talk like, Oh, you could take a mini retirement, you know, like a two months off or something I'm like, wow, that sounds neat. <laughs> I'm not even good at taking a weekend off. So I'd have to be, um, I know Joanna Penn from the creative pen is great about, they do, she does like walking trips and travel. And I think that's like, probably the best way. Cause if you're at home, you're just like, well, why wouldn't I check my email? Oh, why wouldn't I check my sales stats? Um, you know, so again, it's, a good problem to have. I will not complain that the readers want more books, but I, I do feel like I've done it to myself too by starting so many series. And Joe, I know you took last year to, I think, did you finish off, like you had three series that you were doing a new installment in and it was supposed to be the final book in each one? Did that did that yeah. wrap things up or the fans still like, where's book seven coming? Uh, that wrapped things up for one of the series. I, I, yeah, I, I had three series, both, all of which were going to have a book six and they were all slated to be the last book of the series. So book of Deacon, uh, free wrench and, uh, uh, big Sigma. I haven't had anybody coming after me looking for more big Sigma, but, uh, after the release of book six of both the book of Deacon and free wrench, I had people emailing me. I can't wait for the next one, even though like it was clear, <laughs> it was clear. This is, this is the end of it. And uh, yeah, so people are unsatisfied with, with the number of books I've put out in new series. I wonder if this is why some authors just end up killing off their main character. They're like, cause I even, I totally get it with the series I have where they're not finished or they're still in progress, but I have ones. I'm like that one finished with a wedding and they have toddlers at the end. How are they going to go fight dragons where they have three year olds to take care of that to me said adventures are done, you know, for now, but you'd be surprised what people want. Um, okay, so moving on, what are some of your concerns about the next 10 years of your publishing career? Um, advertising, uh, it has sort of become a surcharge on sales at Amazon. Uh, and since they make money from both advertising and sales, my main concern is that Amazon won't feel particularly motivated to innovate, improve, or even maintain the customer experience or the you know, the producer experience. Uh, I worry that advertising will steadily become the primary method of discovery for new books and releases. And uh, this will not only make it very difficult for people to get noticed without shoveling a ton of money into ads, but it'll mean that the big best-selling books won't be a measure of what's popular uh, or what's good, but a measure of who had the biggest budget that month. Now, obviously, quality is always going to be the way a book continues to sell. But the release, like, the launch of a book, the first week or so of a book, isn't about the quality of the book. Nobody's read it yet. They don't know how good of a book it is. 
the, the, the launch of a book is about discover, you know, discovery. And if main thing about discovery is, uh, is advertising, then I, I feel like it will change things a bit. Um, and, you know, naturally, again, so let, let's say that somebody puts a lot of money behind a book that frankly isn't that good. It's going to have a good launch. A lot of people are going to see it because they had a good launch. They're going to read it. Then they'll get a bad taste in their mouth and want to look at something else, which is great. You know, you know, it, it means that, that that author probably has torpedoed their career by putting out a bad book that a lot of people read. Uh, but when they when the readers go and try to read something else, they're not they're going to go look at the the current new releases, the current things that are visible to them. They can't find the things that aren't visible to them. Uh, so if you had a launch, but somebody else had a much bigger launch, it, we learned about the honeymoon period. Uh, if somebody else was just outbidding you for your entire honeymoon period, you could seriously have a hard time ever getting a book to start. Not 100% true, because we just talked about how books can be revitalized and stuff that you wrote years ago can come back. But my main concern is that the prevalence of advertising as an income for Amazon is going to change the way Amazon particularly cares about how books are uh, presented to readers. Yeah, it's funny if you look at their like profit and loss statement, where all their money comes from, like all of the e-commerce is so small margin that they really don't, they lose money on that basically. But the, the servers, the AWS is like a huge money maker. And then I think relatively advertising is not a huge money maker. I'm not even sure. I don't remember if they break it out, but you know, that's all money in their pocket. That's just like, it's on their own servers. They're just taking money from their own <laughs> merchants basically, or authors as the case may be. So they are incentivized to make us pay as much as we're willing to pay for their their ads it's the easiest thing they don't have to have any customer service you know that just it's all automatic and i do think it's tough and you could probably speak to this as um you know i think when you're like making say you're making mid six figures or whatever you can afford to blow a bunch of money on a launch uh and you if you've done enough times you kind of know like i can spend this much and i'm going to reap the benefits by some more organic visibility and stuff, but it's going to be a lot harder if you sort of like, maybe you're making a living as an author, but you're not making enough to like drop 20,000 on a launch. Cause you're like a normal person, you know, <laughs> I still, today I still have sticker shock on how much this stuff costs as having always been somebody that didn't make huge months of money before. Um, so, but yeah, how do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Like how, can you compete with the people that are able to, that have basically become publishing houses at this point, you know, and can really throw a lot at a launch or can you, or you just have to find other methods? Um, for my, for me, it's, it's always been finding other methods. Like I, I have been lucky enough that because I have a 10 year career and again, I've got a, a history of readership. There's the, you know, I, I built up a reasonable newsletter, which isn't huge, but has a decent open rate. And uh, I just have enough people that have bought my other stuff that there's other methods that automatically feed to them. Like, you know, I've got followers on BookBub and a new launch is free on BookBub. So there's a lot of little blips that can get it in. But I really haven't found a way to punch through to a really big release again in probably about uh, four or five years. I've just been able to, you know, get a book to, to pay for itself based upon my my reputation and legacy and the previous fans that I had. So the 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 advertising budget puzzle is one that I'm still trying to untie. Yeah, I think the days of getting a lot of organic discovery for free on Amazon are probably towards the end. 
So actually, if you think about it, it's really kind of a reversion to the mean because throughout the history of publishing, publishers have like basically they've paid for prominent shelf space like at Barnes and Noble and the other stores like that for their best sellers, for their proven people that they know it's going to be worth spending that money for. And the newer or midlist authors have also have always had to do like book signings, readings, school visits, conventions. And everything to really hustle to get books into their into people's hands in the hope that kind of and and this can happen, you know, over time you can grow a career, especially if you write one of those 20 book series. <laughs> you keep gathering people with each new release. And early on, Amazon was great because they didn't take publisher do- dollars in exchange for prominence. So it was really merit-based, you know, because there wasn't there weren't even many ways to advertise when we got started. And it really provided a lot of people an opportunity to be seen based on, I, I don't know if merit is so much the word, or based on their marketing skills, like how well, how, how much they wrote a story that appealed to the a good chunk of the people in their genre, and then also how well they did the cover and the blurb and put things together. So I do think that, you know, people are going to have to work harder again to figure out how to hustle in different places to sell books. And maybe it can still all be online, which is great for us introverts. But it, it is important to kind of watch for new opportunities or go out and make them. Um, you know, it, it's only a matter of time. I think I've said this before on other shows where like there's sort of among wide authors, especially like the Amazon hate, like you have to spend so much money just to be seen on Amazon. I do so well on Barnes and Noble or Google Play, which is great. But I think it's only a matter of time before the other stores are like, ah, advertising. Let's roll this out on our store. I actually just saw an ad a couple of weeks ago that Lowe's, the, the big home improvement store, has started an advertising services network for their site. So basically Amazon ads on Lowe's. So I think we're just going to see all of the big companies doing this going forward because they've got these huge audiences coming to their site. So they, they're realizing, oh, we can monetize people in a way besides, like, like I was talking about before, the e-commerce stuff is really low margin, but paying for digital clicks, getting paid for that, you know, it's, Good, good money right there. So I think it's going to be tough going forward just to say like, oh, it's going to be as simple as uploading your book on Amazon and spending $5 a day on ads might be tough or tougher going forward. But um, so I don't know necessarily, I don't have the answer. I think part of it is finding something you enjoy. And that is also a way to get your work and your name out there you know, kind of leading into whatever appeals to you, whether that's making YouTube videos or podcasting or serializing your work in audio or on your blog or sites like Wattpad, like I've talked about before. One of the things I did early on was patio books. I I think they still exist in some form, although the, the site has changed hands, but where it was you took your audio book and released a chapter a week or whatever on the iTunes and the various podcast networks. And that was an early way that people were seen before you could buy advertising. Nobody knew about Facebook ads. I'm not even sure they had them 10 years ago. Uh, you know, and there weren't no on ads on Amazon. So actually people were more creative when we first got started, Joe, because you had to be, there was nothing really. There was, I've talked about before, like Kindle Nation Daily was a thing. And then Goodreads, you could pay, do pay-per-click ads for in the early days. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be, challenging to make a name for yourself and you're probably going to have to go outside of just being discovered and the bookstore sites. All right. Do you have any more thoughts on that before we got a couple more questions? All right. What is my next question? Is there anything you're planning to do or adapt or change to um, going forward? You know, we kind of think the next five or 10 years or whatever, like what are some changes you're planning to, or how are you planning to adapt to what you see coming? 
I've done a few things already uh, to adapt. Uh, I'm still mostly wide. And I'm still going to basically be wide with everything eventually. But I have I've adopted a strategy that you use, which is the Amazon exclusive first strategy. Uh, I've done that for my last couple series. And though I haven't had the discipline to keep with it to the degree I'd like, I'm slowly starting to improve my advertising chops too. I was never a wizard at advertising, but I was better at it in the past, uh, just not only in terms of producing uh, ads, but in terms of actually having ads running. Uh, so I'm going to be trying to get back into that. Although we are pulling into the holiday season when advertising gets more expensive, no matter what. So it's very easy to convince myself that I'm not going to start doing major ads until January. <laughs> so procrastination is, in this case, you know, uh, justified. Uh, also, since audiobooks have typically been pretty mediocre earners for me, I know that audiobooks are supposed to be exploding. Uh, for me, they've always been, you know, worth doing for sure, particularly if I can get them uh, published traditionally because they cover the uh, upfront costs. But uh, I'm going to try to improve my audiobook strategies there. Uh, I've got two free ones on my YouTube channel. And although it seems like monetizing uh, uh, audiobooks on your YouTube channel is for some reason something YouTube doesn't want you to do, uh, I'll probably leave them there even if they decide I'm never going to be able to make money on them. Because again, uh, both of them are in other series and one of them actually leads very well. Like It's not an entry point, but it is a prequel. So it doesn't spoil anything really. Um, so I'll probably leave them up even if they decide I can't make money on them. And uh, I have a handful of other you know, I mentioned earlier, the Rise of the Red Shadow doesn't have an audiobook, and there's a couple other uh, Book of Deacon stories that don't have audiobooks, and some one-offs that don't. So I'll probably look to fill in the uh, the gaps in my audio lineup. And in the future, I'll probably, and I don't know how successful I'll be, but I'll probably try to get the audiobooks released closer to the release of the uh, of the the ebook and like just the full release. I've only done that once, and I didn't check to see how well it, it fixed things. But I've only once I've had the audiobook ready for the ebook release. So I'm gonna give that a try. That's that's and other than that, just I'm going to try to you know maintain my uh the things that have worked in the past. So I'm still gonna have the free series starters and I'm still gonna do periodic deep discounts on the books uh the box sets. Yeah, I've uh, definitely seen that the audiobooks, uh, I would agree. I think Andrea, too, just tried to get her channel monetized on YouTube, and they're like, eh. But I think it's worth throwing one up there in a series, just because, like I said, that would really help my Death Before Dragons series start selling on ACX, even though a lot of, there's tons of people that are just, like, going to wait for the free, especially if they're in a, like, I got so many listeners from, countries that are not on audible you know they're never gonna drop 20 bucks for an usd for an audiobook um but a, a lot of people apparently found them and did go on and buy them so i found it useful i don't know if there's any point in doing a whole series if you can't get advertising revenue for it um another one i would love and i i think they still haven't opened up yet but spotify i would happily throw some audiobooks in there you would think spotify might be more open to paying advertising revenue that's kind of their whole model is a uh, make money from ad revenue and premium subscribers so yeah sounds like a plan you might as well uh take as many opportunities as you can to make money from all the different like you wrote the book you know <laughs> like you see how many ways you can make money from it so uh we talked about dragon plushies earlier uh which uh audio only listeners will want to know that they're dragon plushies behind joe's head as we speak or they appear to be in our Zoom chat, but I know they are legit dragon fleshies. Um, so have you thought, have you played around any more like this last year or two 
I'm doing like stuffed critters or extra artwork and then trying to monetize it somehow. Like I've, I know we've talked about this before on the show, or is it worth doing that? Like if you, maybe if you do have a series that become successful, can you make extra money? Uh, I don't know. You can outsource to, I want to say Zazzle. I think they're like t-shirts and stuff, but well, what has been your experience and is it worth looking into that as an author, as another source of income? Uh, I've done a bunch of goodies over the years. And overall, I'd say if you're really rocking the charts, if you're a superstar, basically anything that you have is potentially going to be uh, worth doing as long as you're okay with, as long as you've got the fulfillment figured out. Like uh, early on, uh, the only product, quote unquote, that I had was autographed paperback books. And even those were worth doing. Like once, once holiday season came around, you know, I made, I made what I would be very comfortable calling like that's that's handling my sh- holiday shopping is the money that I've made off of just shipping out some, some autograph books. So uh, yeah, if you're, if you're at the, you know, you feel as though you're at the, uh, you know, you're breaking right now and people are discovering you having more product is not a bad idea. Um, especially if they're more easily mass producible. So you can do one big bunch of them and then sell them, you know, while you're peaking. A good example is the plush. Uh, mass-produced plush combined with a partnership with a site that can do the fulfillment for you can make a very reasonable uh, income. Even if your people aren't reading your books, if you've got a character that's cute enough, I have uh, an artist that I've worked with in the past who ended up having a plush that was sold by a site called Fangamer. I believe it was Fangamer. Uh, and there wasn't an associated book series. It was just the, the, the plush itself, but it was cute. And I I think if I move around enough, you might be able to see a, uh, one of those stuffed animals in the thing. I think it's directly behind me, so I actually can't get out of the way. But yeah, like that that's an artist who just produced a character, that, uh, and they don't have to ship it themselves, uh, which is a key thing. Um, there's like this middle ground where if you're only selling a handful, shipping is not a problem. Don't worry about it. If you're selling a ton, you get some, you're, you're making enough money to pay, you know, you could send it to Amazon, have them fulfill it for you. But there's this middle ground where I think a lot of successful authors end up where the amount of time and effort you'd put into fulfilling something yourself far outweighs any financial value it has to you. So sort of be realistic about that and be aware of it. Um, but it, this depends upon like, you know, you, you need to have an engaging marketable critter and the level of success and visibility that to create a demand for it. At my peak, uh, I probably could have certainly done a, a Kickstarter for the Dragon Plush, which is the visible over my head uh, and made a fair amount of money. Uh, if I did it right now, um, I, you know, I, I did the groundwork for it, as you can see. Uh, and it, it's more so now, by the way, than when I was doing it. It's surprisingly financially achievable to do a run like that. Um, but if I was to do it now, I feel like I'd end up with, I'd be that guy with 2,000 stuffed dragons in his basement, which is all sorts of problems uh, that you have to deal with. <laughs> Uh, these days, I think a better choice is print-on-demand. Um, you mentioned Zazzle, Cafe Press, Redbubble. The, there's a ton of them. They'll do T-shirts. They'll do you know mugs. They'll do tote bags, phone cases. There's a ton of like a, mouse pads, tons of stuff that people might actually buy. And it's really as easy as just putting a logo or a character or something like that up. And uh, you don't make a lot because they cost more to the consumer. And therefore, unless you're going to really you know, uh, gouge your consumer for, for your product, you're probably only going to make a little bit off of each one, but there's no inventory to worry about because they're produced on demand and there's no fulfillment to worry about because they're shipped from the producer. So I think that's probably something worth doing 
it might not be a big earner for you, but the cost for entry is practically zero. So just have it out there. There's no harm in having an additional thing. The other choice is to do little things that are like cool. Uh, and either you can ship very easily, like in an envelope, or just you can use them as a bundle with something else. I made coins. Again, if you watch the video, I have a coin I'll hold in my front of my face. Um, these are super cool. People who have them are so super happy that they have them. And also, there are plenty of people who are willing to, oh, uh, I wasn't going to buy a book from him. And I wasn't going to buy a coin from him. But I get a free coin when I buy a book. Oh, well, that's a good idea. And like, you can pull stuff like that. It, it's remarkably effective at uh, uh, getting folks to, to buy in on something they might not have otherwise got. Uh, so far, they're not a huge source of income, but they've by now paid for themselves, which is, of course, always my measurement for how successful things need to be. Um, and when it comes to artwork, uh, I have commissioned a tremendous amount of artwork, and I feel like extra art is always worth having. It's it's uh, it's served me well. Number one, I just like having art. Uh, so I'll just if I have a character I like and I see an artist whose style I like, I'll just say, yeah, here's eighty bucks, here's a hundred bucks, give me a character. It saved me in that I have written short stories that were popular enough from the Patreon that I just released them wide, and I was able to use previously uh, I had that permission, but I was able to use previously commissioned art as the cover. Uh, also. Artwork is fantastic fodder for throwing into a newsletter. If you're the kind of person who puts out a newsletter weekly or monthly um, and you don't have something to talk about, well, commission some new art and talk about that. It's, it's, it's useful for it. And I think it's still true that social media posts that have got artwork attached to them tend to do better than those who don't. So, yeah, uh, it, if, if you have any interest in doing any merchandising potentially at all in the future, my recommendation would be to find a couple of artists you like and get some stuff commissioned because even if you don't do the merch, the art has got all sorts of value otherwise. Yeah, I always like the idea of doing this and I never get around to it. I think part of it is just that I tend to write a new series every year or year and a half. And so once I move on to the old one, that's probably about the time or once I move on to a new one, like that'd be about the time, because it seems like artists take away, you know, it sort of like ends up being months before you actually get your thing done. And I don't know. So if I was one of those people that stayed always in the same world or was writing a really long series or releasing slow, more slowly so that, you know, I kept gathering more readers as the years went on. I could see maybe taking the time to do it. It's always one of those, would I be better off writing questions I have to ask myself and, Clearly, the answer so far has been, yes, I'd be better off writing because I haven't made the time to do it. I do think that the people, a lot of the people who do this have like teenage kids or something that they want to put on the payroll. I mean, it's good for their taxes. And then they've got someone that's kind of knows, invested in you doing well. <laughs> or maybe they just, maybe you give them a commission. You know, how many, many plush dragons from my world do you sell? That's how much money you're making. Um, but yeah, it's another thing. Anytime you're doing the fulfillment yourself, uh, and this is why I always, I don't make it abundantly clear that yes, I will do a signed paperback <laughs> if you want. And so it's, it's usually only the hardcore people that ask that they want it for a girlfriend's birthday or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. But I don't advertise it on my site because then I have to go to the post office. And <laughs> I live out in the sticks. So I go into town these days, guys. It's like, ah, I really got to want it. <laughs> but um, that is um, good stuff for people who are interested in doing that. It's good to know that you can do it now like 3D printing or with the plushies, what site did you say you can get something like that done? Did you say? You'd think I would have written it down, uh, but 
uh, well, let's put it this way. There's plenty of places uh, that you can have the, have uh, plushes made in China. You don't have to search very hard to find them. There is a print-on-demand place that doesn't print plushes on demand. That would be amazing, but they probably cost 95 bucks a piece. But there is a place that does print-on-demand that is now uh, starting to sell plushies. And I, I'll have to put it. I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But um, yeah, so they're becoming much more accessible. Also, by the way, we haven't mentioned it. Um, uh, enamel pins. Enamel pins are incredibly popular. They're still incredibly popular. And they're also tremendously accessible in terms of having them produced in small quantities that you can sell. Like you can do 500 of them and keep them in a shoebox under your bed. Like they're, they're a good choice for something. If you want a cool thing to sell, it's not going to be hard to ship. I do want to add that anytime I ever have somebody over now to fix like the water heater or something, I'm going to be thinking like Joe was. 2,000 plush dragons in the garage that you have to explain to the guy. Hopefully they're in boxes. I mean, I assume you didn't actually do that, but. No, I didn't. The, the, okay. the, the three visible, the four visible above my head are the only four that exist. But, uh, okay. So this last question I have is for you. Uh, Lindsay, you've seen some pretty consistent growth and some pretty impressive amounts of success. How much of that do you feel was a direct result of various tactics that you've tried? Uh, do you feel like the experiments in genres and release strategies and ad campaigns have been key to your success? Or is the consistent and high quality output the main thing and everything else is just, you know, experiment? It's so weird not to be the one asking the question. I'm like, oh, I got to answer this. Um, so I think for me, I think, yeah, putting out books kind of consistently regularly over the years over 10 years now going on 11 has been a lot of it or, or most of it <laughs> despite doing these podcasts i'm really not someone for whom the marketing has ever come naturally and i really do it reluctantly i've i used to do more i used to be willing to do like group newsletter blasts and uh, promo group promos and stuff and now i'm just like nope nope don't want to do anything i i really prefer my perfect days are just holing up in my writing cave and having the books magically sell themselves or in my case throwing on some amazon auto ads and letting those run um so that's part of it consistency is super boring to talk about but it is uh, something i will see from a lot of authors that you see their names consistently in you know like the top 100s for your categories it's it's probably very common to for them to be putting out a book every two or three months um, not everybody every now and then you get somebody who can do one a year and, and does amazing but um, I am always hesitant to give too much credit to something like talent or learned skill but I, I, I'm sure there's going to be an element of that in most success in my case my books are a little unique or quirky as my readers say with um, humor and banter and I guess to some people endearing characters. So I think that's something that's earned me some really loyal fans that have followed me from series to series. Um, it may be very well be the same thing that kind of keeps me from ever writing anything with like super mass appeal, uh, but that's fine. Like it's been made a perfectly good career. And I, I wouldn't, I don't think I, you know, some people are like, I could write a bestseller, you know, that hits all the tropes and does all the things if I wanted to. I really don't think I could. Like I, <laughs> the more I try to not be, just go with the flow and true with myself, true to myself, that sounds so hokey. Uh, the more I struggle and I, I really don't think I could write that kind of thing if I wanted to. So as far as like tactics and book releases, I, I do think that being willing to launch a new book one at 99 cents, which I pretty frequently do, bringing out books two and three right after has been helpful for gaining traction with new series that launches. 
some series have done better than others, but I can't say that anything has ever bombed. Even Flash Gold, <laughs> the, the thing with the novellas in the Yukon, uh, Steampunk, uh, it did, you know, it's, it certainly made the money I spent on it and, and has done fine over the years for what it is. I, I know that in this podcast, I often kind of sound disappointed when I talk about launches, but that's really more because I compare everything to past successes at this point, and that's something to be aware of if you find yourself doing that too, like you're disgruntled because, oh, I had that one really great series and everything after that's been disappointing. I, I think that's just kind of typical for an author's. If you have a long enough career, you'll have some things that really take off and lots of just eh, do okay. You know, I can also be impatient and judge things too early on. I, I remember I was actually disappointed with the launch of my Death Before Dragon series because it was like, yeah, I was doing great the first couple of weeks and then all the COVID stuff started like March of last year and it, you know, it kind of fell after that. And, you know, it wasn't probably a couple months later. Oh, I remember too, the audiobooks got super delayed. That was when there was a big backup at audible ACX and uh, it was months. It was just waiting in the queue for months. And here I'd had this plan to, we talked about this launch and co-concurrently concurrently. I actually had the ebook and the audiobook ready to go. And the audiobook ended up coming out like four months later after the launch. But, Actually, that one did well in ads once I raised the price to $2.99. That, that series just really powered through it and really did well last year. And I think I ended up having my best ebook income to date on that one. So, you know, patience is a virtue, but it's not one of mine. <laughs> but that's why I self-publish, guys. I could never wait two years to, for my book to be published and like nine months before the feedback came back from an editor or something. I would just totally die and have to be doing something else on the side. Um, uh, we've talked about before, I've talked about before, I actually think the genre hopping, uh, like in the year or two where I was focused on the pen name, probably hurt me as far as like maximum potential goes. So I, it's nothing I ever recommend to people. <laughs> I usually say, do as I say, not as I do. I can't say that I recommend, that I regret any of the stories that I've taken the time to write. Um, you know, I genre hop for a reason because it makes my muse happy. Usually by the time I'm towards the end of like the epic fantasy series, I'm like, oh man, I really want to do just a space opera romp out in, in the sci-fi world. So, but that is when I look at people who are consistently more successful than I am, the sort of the common theme is that they picked a lane and stayed in it. Their fans don't have to think about whether a new series is for them because their new series is pretty similar to the last three series they wrote that, you know, all in like urban fantasy or whatever it is. And so they're just like, yep, more of what I like. I'm going to buy that. So. Uh, I do think it also, it's kind of helped me not to be married to any one particular thing as far as strategies and tactics goes. And I've been willing to experiment over the years. I have some books that are wide, some that are exclusive. Some are still free up on Wattpad. Uh, same with audiobooks. Some are wide, some are exclusive, some are free on YouTube. I've got the Patreon where I give the super fans the new releases early. I regularly, regularly add new newsletter bonuses for my subscribers. And to get new subscribers, like I'm always conscious of the fact that, you know, people fade away. I've had, a, I've been doing this long enough that a number of people pass on that were fans. That's always depressing when you get the email that's like, um, you can take this guy off your list now. <laughs> he's, he's passed away. I'm like, oh, you didn't get to finish the series. Um, but yeah, sorry, random downer there. But so I'm always trying to continue to grow the newsletter is sort of the, the priority and always trying to like give people more give them their money's worth and then some 
So I, I have a lot of stuff out there that's free. I do a lot of free bonuses, even though sometimes as I'm doing them, I'm like, why am I doing this? This is taking all this time. I need to start working on the next thing that's actually going to pay. Once it's done, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad I did that. And the readers really enjoy the little bonus things. I, you know, I often have like a Christmas scene or something that ends up being a short story by the end that I throw up on the blog. I've also always been willing to invest back in the business. Like I've redone the covers over the years. I started started doing audiobooks before it was clear that they would pay for themselves, but I figured, you know, eventually they'll pay for themselves. It might take 10 years. You know, it's been nice to get to the point where like, oh yeah, they're actually profitable. Um, when it was, became apparent that ad spend helped with launches and could also keep the income from dropping off as much from month to month, I started putting more money into ads. I sometimes hear from authors who make six figures without spending money on ads. And, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, oh my gosh, at least try. Take some of the money you're earning and try ads. You never know. You might go from like six figures to seven figures, at which point you're talking about setting yourself up for early, early retirement and building lasting generational wealth. So opportunities like this don't come along every day, especially for writers. You know, we're not rock star athletes or <laughs> we're not, we don't have bands. We're not going to have these massive groupies following us around. The 10,000 fans thing can be a challenge to get there. But I think it's a mistake not to realize that we're in, we've been in kind of this golden age of self-publishing for the last 10, 12 years now. And I, you know, I've said, talked about before, I'm kind of a glass half empty person <laughs> rather than a glass half full person. So I always assume this could go away at any time or that it's not always going to be this good. Like we talked about Amazon and also Google, Kobo, Kobo slash Rakuten, Barnes and Nobles. These are all publicly traded companies that have shareholders to account for. So even when things get tougher, you know, they have to still report their earnings every quarter and you can better believe they're going to suck as much money as they can out of their businesses out of us as I as they can. That's why I really foresee advertising popping up on all those other sites. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if someday the royalty rates change. I just, I think it's going to be unlikely that it's going to get easier going forward. So while I wouldn't tell anybody like, kill yourself trying to write a book a month, also don't, don't leave money on the table. <laughs> you know, like if there's an opportunity that you can make more from what you're doing, uh, try to embrace that. So you don't have any regrets down the road. Like if things do get harder and you're like, oh man, why didn't I work a little harder or do a little more with that one series that was popular back in the day? Uh, just something to think about making hay while the sun shines. That was, I tried to address all the points in your question. I don't know if it's particularly coherent. <laughs> Do you have any? Uh, Excuse me while I mute myself premature, prematurely. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts, Joe? Uh, I'll say that like, I'm going to, I have access to these, uh, to these files where these things are written. And there's a few of them where I'm going to have to save them and put them aside because I feel like they're useful uh, references. And I feel like that answer in particular is a very useful reference. Uh, I also say uh, uh, Teespring, Teespring, uh, search for Teespring and Plush, and you'll find that they have a, a guide on sourcing and selling via their site. So that was what I should have put in my notes earlier. All right. And they will fulfill it and do everything. That's what I like. Cause this, that's the trouble with signed stuff is you, at some point it has to pass through your hands. So, but I love the idea of stuff where once the design is made, they're just getting shipped and it's not any extra work for you. Yeah. They do fulfillment. I think the sourcing is the hard part and the fulfilling is like what they were, what they were already doing, but it's both, both are covered and you'll find their little blog post about it. 
All right. And as usual, we were not able to keep the show under an hour. I would just go quietly die in the corner and hopefully feel perky in the morning. Um, but thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Bye, guys. So long, everybody.